Welcome to Season of the Bitch, the leftist podcast that knows that biological race is fake, but racism is all too real. Today we have Julia, Bianca, and Laura. And today we're going to be talking about racial health disparities, what causes them, what we can do about them, and racism in the medical field more broadly. Um, For those who are interested in this topic, you should definitely check out our recent episode on the fucked up history of gynecology, which is specifically about racism in the field of sexual health. But today we're going to be talking more about some of the ideological foundations of racism in medicine and the broader ways that these issues show up in medical care today. Um, We have two amazing guests on this episode. So first, I wanted to give you both a chance to introduce yourselves. Um, Maddie, maybe we can start with you. Tell us about how you came into medicine, how you decided to become a doctor, and how did activism fit into that for you? Sure. Um, Thank you all so much for having us. It's awesome to be here. Uh, My name is Maddie. And I, uh, how did I get into medicine? It's been been a bit of a journey, I guess. I graduated from college and then took off four years and spent those four years working in local government and with community organizations in the Bay Area, working mostly with um, justice for immigrant communities and their health, Um, and then ended up uh, realizing that public health was a little bit too 30,000 foot, I would say. Um, What do you mean by that? Yeah, great. little bit too high up. So I was really involved in a level of like policy and program management. And that was uh, not close enough to working directly with people. Um, Mm. And I managed to meet an incredible doctor who was uh, all at once a community organizer and activist. She had her hand in policy, she had her hand in program management, and she was a doctor. And so she was able to give this on the ground care, organizing her community and pushing for um, pretty radical change when she needed it. And I was like, that, that's the kind of doctor I want to be. That's what I want to do. So then I spent the next couple of years finishing up all my prerequisites because med school is a beast and um, Mm -hmm. ended up going picking this incredible program that Bernie and I are a part of. Um, So I am currently a third year, three out of five years for the UC Berkeley UCSF joint medical program. Um, We get a master's through Berkeley and then we finish off our medical degree um, at UCSF. And I, yeah, I think that's about it for me. Awesome. And how did, where did activism and like anti-racism fit into that for you? Did they always sort of go hand in hand, like anti-racism and medicine or what, how did you kind of make that connection? I think that I used to think that activism was a bit more siloed. Um, Certainly when I was working with community organizations, the focus was always justice and, and I had a lot of passion for that. And it was really focused on was mostly working with Latin uh, Latinx farm workers in the Bay Area, um, down in Pescadero. And I didn't really get to see how connected that was. I was doing other self-work, I guess you could say, um, around the, the understanding anti-racism. I um, come from a white upper middle class background. And so I had a lot of learning to do before I could really understand uh, how everything is connected. Um, 
and then once I started seeing how everything is connected, uh, I was just about to start med school. And then in med school, started seeing, as we, I'm sure we'll get to tell you a lot more about how messed up everything mm-hmm. is and, and how wild the um, history of medicine in, intentionally is. And so for my journey of medicine, they have always been connected inseparably so um, because I don't believe that you can be a healer and not be addressing some of these harms Mm -hmm. Um, but it it was a bit of a journey to get there and I can talk more but I've made a lot of mistakes along the way but um, yeah but currently the journey of anti-racism in medicine has been um, pretty seamless from the start and I will give tons of kudos to Bernie for really Bernie and several others who are ahead of us that like blazed that path for me and showed me that that was just the way that it had to be. Yeah. Bernie, how about for you? How did you get into medicine? Yeah, um, I think uh, it's always just such a pleasure to hear from Maddie because I mean, being in this work together reminds me that it's been like it's a whole journey to come to this place where we are in med school. Uh, treating um, treating patients, caring for patients, and also realizing where we came from. Um, for me, uh, going into medicine is uh, always a very personal story, and it really starts with uh, my roots. And so I come from a Filipino Toisan immigrant heritage, and I come from communities where um, there is no trust to actually seek medical care within Western medicine hospitals. Mm. Um, and I come from, uh, I lived in immigrant um, communities in, in Los Angeles, uh, mo- mostly Filipino Mexican communities of which my family and my loved ones would just not want to see the doctor. And even to mm-hmm. this day, you know, my mom and my dad um, do not trust Western medicine. Mm-hmm. And so for me, and a lot of this again is rooted in different um, uh, experiences that happened in the past of which there were life altering procedures that were not done with complete consent because mm-hmm. the medical jargon and was not understood by my mom who has limited English. And so um, because of that and studying and then when I was in college, I uh, majored in biological anthropology alongside women, gender, sexuality studies. And I realized, you know, the story of my mom and the communities that I grew up in Um, They're not isolated and they're not alone. This is something that is rampant and this is something that has actually um, been embedded and inherent in the history of Western medicine. And the reason Mm -hmm. why I went into Western medicine is really because I found it um, a responsibility for me to be a bridge. I knew that for me, um, I I knew that for me, there were so many um, ways of which the Western medical system was seen as the dominant form of care, of um, healing, of uh, medicine. And I always wondered why this was. And so really I wanted to investigate why as a medical student. And so going into medical school, I also was able to um, combine my identities as a community organizer, as a healer um, and as an artist. And so for me, Um, By day, I'm a medical student, but then outside of medical school, I do a lot of community organizing. And so in the Bay Area, um, I founded the Freedom Community Clinic and now co-organize that clinic with amazing Black women of color healers around the Bay Area to provide whole person healing 
directly to spaces and places where communities gather that combines the strengths of Western medicine and traditional indigenous healing. Um, me and my friends, we also have a podcast called Woke Woke Docs, where we talk about yes. the narratives and the lies. Yeah, for real. So respect to y'all for yes. this. Yes. <laughs> Love to have like, fellow podcasters. Yes. So for real. Yeah. <laughs> yes. No, I know the whole spiel. But yeah, we our podcast um, centers on the, the narratives and the experiences of women of color in medicine and health justice. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Maddie is super, super humble. And we both we both are the founding team members of something called the Institute for Healing and Justice in Medicine, where we are really an interdisciplinary hub that publishes um, uh, interdisciplinary community-centered work that exposes and works towards a new medicine that is centered on community healing and justice because right now as y'all know we're kind of in a shit show and um, medicine has yet to really acknowledge the violent history that it Mm. has perpetuated um, against black brown immigrant communities and it's our responsibilities like y'all have alluded to to not only be medical students but to be um, active activists in this work um, 24-7. Totally. Yeah. So I think before we get into more of the details of the report that you both worked on, um, we spend a lot of time on this podcast talking about like the troubling experiences that we've had with medical care. Um, And I just wanted to make some space for, you know, anyone who wants to, to share um, some like specific examples to help us get into what this can look like at the patient level. Um, I was thinking about this experience that my cousin and I had where, um, Basically, like with a lot of antidepressants, you can get this thing called brain zaps, which is like this weird twinge of pain that can be like in your head or other parts of your body. Um, So one of my cousins started taking an SSRI and she went to her doctor and was like, I have these weird twinges in my arms and legs, like what's going on? And her doctor told her it was probably due to this pre-existing back injury that she had before and basically was like, you're not taking good enough care of your back injury. Like, that's why this is happening. Yeah, which was like super fucked up, but and, you know, didn't really like give any actual help on what she should be doing differently. Um, But then later I started taking the same antidepressant, had the same symptoms and like my doctor had told me this might happen. So my cousin and I get to talking about this and she's like, oh, my God, I think like that is what was happening to me. And like my doctor just never told me this was a possibility. He just kind of blamed me for it. Um, And like, I don't know if this had anything to do with race or gender, but my cousin is a Latina woman living in a very white area. So I did sort of just like have to wonder if that was a factor there. Totally. Yeah, totally. I think a lot of instances like this are like, I know there's, there's more of like a subtle, I guess, like, I don't want to maybe like a microaggression type thing where like, you don't know whether it was like racially charged, but you like definitely have it in like the forefront of your mind when things Mm -hmm. like this happen. Um, Yeah, I guess the story I'm about to tell is kind of intense. And so I kind of wanted to put a content warning up front that this story does involve sexualized comments that a doctor made to me when I was a child. Um, And so like what happened was around the time I was in middle school, this was like around the time where I had begun like wearing makeup, kind of finding like my personal style. I like stopped wearing the Gap Kids clothes my mom would like pick out for me. <laughs> um, and so uh, my pediatrician, I had had the same pediatrician ever since I got like my first vaccines as a baby up until this point. So it was my, he was like my only primary care provider. 
And he was like this older white cis man. And so when I had gone in for my annual checkup when I was 12, my pediatrician like immediately like pointedly like commented on my makeup. And then he decided it would be appropriate to call me exotic looking, um, which I like I was 12. Um, and so that obviously made me extremely, extremely uncomfortable because like, I, I don't I, I couldn't really find the words for why I was like so uncomfortable but I like told my mom immediately that I wanted to get a new doctor who was like non-white and preferably also not a cis male because like by age 12 I was already going through puberty and I had my period already and I had like was becoming aware of like the fact that I could be seen as like a I don't know like a sexualized person and so I became increasingly uncomfortable with the idea of letting cis male doctors see my body, especially after this one had made these like racially charged and like sort of sexualized comments about it. Mm. And like for background, I grew up in this majority white suburb of Pittsburgh. And so um, I'm not sure if this was like, I was like one of the few people of color patients who he saw. So he just didn't know how best to handle situations like this, but it was definitely how best to handle a child coming into his office. yeah i just like don't even know like yeah truly the worst yeah yeah totally i guess for our guests i'd love to ask both of you if there are any specific experiences that come to mind either as times like in your personal experiences of seeking medical care or as a medical student someone who's working on like the doctor side where you've seen some of these issues of racism within medicine firsthand Yes, I would say every day. Um, and uh, currently I work in, you know, one of the big, uh, one of the really big um, hospitals in UCSF. And so this is um, in UCSF and the Bay Area. And so this is really um, an issue that happens, like, like y'all said, in different specialties and different um, types of hospitals. Um, and for me, I work a lot with um, patients who identify as black, brown, immigrant um, communities. And um, I'd say so often have I, for example, I was on kind of my surgery rotation where I'm working with the surgery team. And um, there were a list of people who um, you're supposed to follow up with every single morning who kind of need follow up from the surgery team. However, they would always skip um, one patient. And as I did more you know research as to why they were skipping this patient i realized um that basically this patient identifies as a black man he was thinking about whether or not he wanted amputation surgery because his diabetes had gotten so bad and the kind of the gossip and the talk among a lot of the surgical residents was that oh he complains too much he's so emotional we don't have to go see him because he's so indecisive and he just can't make a decision. <sighs> and so actually throughout, you know, the whole week I was there, they routinely just purposefully did not see him when you customarily you're supposed to see every single patient that's on your list. Um, and so he kept, and so I took it upon my own self to uh, visit him and to talk to him more about, you know, what, what was going on through his mind. And of course you, you learn more about, why these are such um, big worries because it's the huge life altering procedure. There are so many worries about the practicalities, about the emotional experience of surgery. And because there just wasn't a lack of care or attention given to him, um, he was completely ignored. And I'm 
you know, terrified as to like, wow, who are the other patients out there who don't have that nice student who has that extra time to actually see that patient or who, who um, frankly might not care. Um, so, you know, th that's one, but honestly, every single day there are, you know, off comments that I hear from doctors, healthcare professional staff about whether how lazy patients are for not, for not taking their medications, um, because they're being too demanding or too assertive. Oftentimes these are ascribed to patients who are of black or uh, who are of black or brown identity. Um, and you know, these off comments are done when uh, sometimes when the doctors are talking about patients on their list that they have to see in the hospital or after they get off the phone with them. So it's really kind of a very pervasive thing that I witness every single day and it's draining as fuck. And it's, um, that's just the symptom. And it makes me realize why from my own personal experiences and that of my family that um, there is no trust and I see why. And we are in 2020 and it's very hard to um, realize that that hasn't been um, taken uh, medicine hasn't taken accountability for that. Totally. Yeah. Um, Maddie, was there anything um, specific you wanted to share before we move on to the next section? Um, I think the only thing that I would add, I, so I'm a preclinical student, meaning that um, Bernie is in the middle of what we call clerkships. So she's spending the full year really immersed in the hospital and the clinics. Um, and I'm in the part of medical training where you actually just learn most things from a textbook, um, mm -hmm. which is less fun, but I do get the chance to go into clinic every now and again. Um, and I remember being in clinic and, and being asked by my preceptor to go in and see a patient. I, I worked at a clinic where most of our um, patient body was uh, Spanish-speaking um, variably different different documentation statuses some folks were documented some folks were not um thankfully in the bay area most of our counties have a health it's not exactly a health insurance but they have some version of coverage for undocumented folks so folks are able to still come into the clinic and be seen um and again acknowledging that you know as bernie was mentioning these are these are the folks who overcame a lot of different aspects to, to even just be into the clinic um, to trust Western medicine enough to show up in our doors. And, um, you know, I was asked to go see a patient who had uh, some chronic heart disease going on. And um, my preceptor asked me to discuss this uh, calculator with him that would help us understand how, how high his risk was for um, a heart attack or other like stroke, other other bad things that can happen with heart disease. And I sat down, spun my computer screen around so we could fill it out together because I'm a med student, I don't know what we're doing. And so I figured we should both just not know what we were doing together. Um, and we started going through it and it asks age and gender and then race. And the options are um, white, black, or other. Mm -hmm. And he just kind of looked at me and he was like, what, what do I, what do I even put in here? You know, like what's, what's the right answer? Um, and the right answer is it's, it's fucked up and that's not uh, an adequate way to understand risk for um, a biological disease. Mm -hmm. And I think also it's probably helpful and important here to kind of pause and just, just, 
I'm, I'm synthesizing from a lot of the different lived experiences you guys have shared and um, um, you folks have shared. And, and I'm super, super grateful for that and, and definitely hold space. And there were some pretty vulnerable things shared. And I, I'm, I'm grateful that you all are trusting us with, with those stories. Um, there are different, I, I like to think of there are some different helpful frameworks. Um, so first is trying to parse apart sort of like my patient was trying to parse apart with me when we looked at this calculator together, uh, risk calculator. You know, what's the, what's the difference between race and ethnicity and are they the same thing? Um, and so we typically like to start, we do several presentations on our work and, and typically like to start by sort of defining like what is race, what is racism? Um, and I just point out that, you know, race and ethnicity are, are, are not the same thing, but they are very, very often conflated very, very often just like assumed to be the same thing. Um, and it's not helpful that the US census pretty much does put them on the same footing and doesn't really differentiate between the two. Uh, but the, the sort of working definition that, that we use is that race is a socio-political construct, um, meaning that it is a construct of power created by society and, and how society uh, and people view each other and how that gets distributed into different aspects of society. Um, and then the other, aspect that we tend to like to talk about just to give us all some some grounding in common language is the so many levels of racism that exist um, because I think if we look back into the civil rights movement there was um, there was a point where there was a national choice more or less to focus on interpersonal racism this is just the uh, the national narrative has become this idea that racism is just if one person is mean to another person on behalf of skin color. Um, and that just doesn't encompass everything. Nor, first of all, that doesn't encompass everything that is interpersonal racism, but it also really doesn't um, help us understand what's really going on. And that is that there are many, many other levels of racism, many of which um, help explain why our world looks the way it does and tell us really where we need to be focusing our attentions if we want the world to really change and to, to be manifesting and creating the building the world that we're actually um, dreaming of living in. And so the one that we tend to focus on because it's the one that medicine really does a bad job of consistently identifying sort of the root cause way high up level, the structural racism. Um, and basically what I would say about structural racism is just that it's, it's sort of how all of the norms of our society uh, lead to differential distributions of power among people and throughout our institutions and throughout our society. So uh, I think it's helpful to just kind of ground ourselves in that because some of the experiences we shared were um, different levels, different intersections of interpersonal racism, structural racism, uh, mm -hmm. institutional racism, all, all these different kinds of things. Yeah, yeah, I'm really glad that you brought that up. I think before we get into like some more of the medical specifics and details of how things are working right now, I thought it could be good to start out just with a quick overview of what it means to say, like we did at the top of the episode, that biological race is not real. Um, one way that I like to think about this is like a lot of people believe that race causes racism like they think that there are inherent biological differences between people like skin color and then for some reason maybe because people inherently don't trust people who are different from them this causes racism which most i think like you said a lot of people view as interpersonal racism like mm -hmm. people treating each other differently because of race um but then there's sort of this opposite perspective which is more in line with how i understand things 
which is that racism causes race. So people treating each other differently and institutions treating people differently on the basis of these small physical differences leads to this creation of racial categories mm -hmm. and the reliance on those categories to explain things. Um, some of our listeners are probably familiar with the term racecraft, which is this concept that was created by Barbara and Karen Fields to describe kind of this process of how racism itself is what produces this social belief in race as a biological fact. Um, and I wanted to bring this up because I think this is really similar to a framework that you both use in this report. So you're both co-authors of this amazing report called Toward the Abolition of Biological Race in Medicine. Um, and in the report you wrote about racism specifically in the medical field, racial differences are not the cause of disparities. They are the result of multi-level racism. Mm -hmm. So I think we can get um, into more specific examples in a little bit, but I wanted to just start maybe with an overview. Um, like, could you explain how the medical field has typically explained or used biological race and what's wrong with that understanding of race? Yeah, I think that's a great um, overview of what you said, Julia. And just to be very explicit, the, um, the codification of race as having any biological founda foundations is rooted in colonization and slavery. And so there were several people, several scientists who had a, who already had the um, assertion in mind that they wanted to um, assert the superiority of white people over black, brown and native people. And um, with this, um, purpose in mind, they sought to codify that through scientific methods and tools. And so y'all have talked about kind of the father of gynecology. And the reality is that a lot of the medical tools today that we use, whether that is the speculum, and we're also going to talk about the, the speculum, which is used for pelvic exams, um, the spirometer, which is used to assess lung function, and um, diagnose things like asthma and COPD, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, um, as well as um, other, other different um, tools. A lot of those were actually first um, created by colonizers and they were applied um, to actually document how enslaved people had lesser lung function, less, um, a less optimal health status than colonizers. And because of that, then um, use those uh, quote unquote scientific measurements to justify slavery. Um, and so uh, you can definitely find in the report kind of specifics about that. But then in terms of how does this history actually translate into present day, um, uh, present day work and present day experiences. The first is that um, these tools are still used and medical students are not taught about the origins of how racism was central to its foundation. And the second thing is that whenever we learn about really any disease, especially those of um, chronic diseases, so for example, like um, high blood pressure hyper, um, or hypertension, um, asthma, um, chronic kidney disease, um, things like sickle cell disease, um, basically, as we learn about not only the pathophysiology of that, um, epidemiology is an intrinsic part of the medical education. And almost always, in almost every disease, you'll have 
um, race as a risk factor. And so students will literally learn that um, not only like, oh, if you live in kind of like a food desert, you'll be at risk for hypertension, but also if you are black, it is taught that you will be at risk for hypertension. And so this is codified through not only lectures and homework, but also exams. And so all of our exams in which we have kind of qualifying exams to go to the next level of our training, um, it will say um, patient X is African-American, therefore, and has these types of symptoms, therefore, what are the choices would you provide as treatment? And oftentimes, um, medical education would use these different factors as clues as to um, pointing you into a different direction than you would if it was just, um, if race was not mentioned. And so um, from the very beginning and the very start, um, we are taught as students to see race as a risk factor rather than questioning the societal structural norms that have um, caused these disparities and injustices to exist in the first place. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing that. I think that flows well into the next thing we wanted to discuss with you. Um, so your report covers a lot of the ways that racism is, as you said, literally codified into the scientific formulas or different ways that healthcare providers use to determine how and if their patients need treatments. So like specifically, as you mentioned in your report, different like coefficients and other numbers are used for black patients that are like based on experimentally unsound studies that have often resulted in these black patients getting no diagnosis or an incorrect diagnosis or getting no or inadequate treatment. Um, I feel like as I was reading your report, I was thinking of so many things to discuss, but I feel like we could zoom in on some of uh, these different like formulas and calculations that you had mentioned. Um, I know you had already kind of started talking about this, Bernie, but we were uh, interested in like the, um, session where you discuss Cartwright and this barometer and how differential, quote unquote, differential, like lung capacity calculations were used for white versus black patients. So I don't know if either of you wanted to expand on that um, or add on to anything that has already been said. Bernie, do you want to take that section? Uh, I'm, Bernie, we all wrote different parts of the section and I'm pretty sure Bernie spent the bulk of, <laughs> did the bulk of this one. So I'm going to let her uh, hand over her expertise on this one. Yeah, sure, Maddie. Yes, and if I miss anything, please add anything. Um, the, uh, I think kind of just like what you said, it's not only are we, not only are students taught that race is a risk factor. Um, so whenever they see patients of a certain skin color, they'll use their own biases of which to assess that and then therefore have their own list of diagnoses. Um, the other reality in medicine is that race is embedded in calculations of which sometimes medical students honestly are not even aware of. And so mm -hmm. in our, in our um, report, we outline how some of the most common chronic diseases that affect um, black, brown immigrant communities because of how chronic disease affects people who do not have access and resources and are forcibly exploited in society via um, multiple different measures. Um, we learn that a lot of the different diseases, so for example, hypertension or high blood pressure, um, things also like chronic kidney disease, things like asthma and COPD, um, all of those actually have in them different coefficients and different um, 
different, yeah, different coefficients that affect, like you said, how a person is diagnosed. And so there's, um, I think the one example that is truly shocking is that there is a picture in our report of uh, comparing the kidney function of a 22-year-old black man to, for example, I think a 72-year-old white woman. And if you um, actually utilize some of the most common uh, equations that are used to evaluate mm -hmm. kidney function, um, you'll see that the race coefficient that is used when factored into that can actually um, output that a 22-year-old black man has the same kidney function as that of a 72-year-old white woman. And how this came to be is through history and why that's still used is honestly still a question today. However, there are so many different researchers and specifically wanna name nephrologist, Dr. Vanessa Grubbs, who came from UCSF, who is really working um, and advocating fiercely on how um, many black patients are not getting the treatment that they deserve on time because they, they are assumed to have better kidney function than their white counterparts. And so it gets actually pretty mm -hmm. confusing because the way that race is factored in, especially for black patients in different diagnoses is such that sometimes the race coefficient allows them to be seen as more, I don't know, quote unquote resilient than their mm -hmm. white counterparts or seen as lesser than. And so regardless of whatever the race coefficient does, it misdiagnoses um, black patients and can have a severe effect on whether black and brown patients are over-treated, under-treated, regardless, they're not being treated right. And so the fact that we are using these subjective measures of race that oftentimes is dependent on the perception of the provider um, does not allow us to give quality care to our patients. And oftentimes um, this is not known by a lot of medical students. Although I would say for um, kidney function, um, explicitly when we look at lab values in the hospital, you'll say, you'll see, um, it's called EGFR. Mm -hmm. You'll see that the kidney function uh, lab value of EGFR, there'll be one for if African-American and there'll be another um, if not. And so this is just, uh, this is just bad science. And it's, uh, there's currently a lot of tension um, as to how to move forward with that. I do wanna say that there is definitely a movement that's going on that we are helping to facilitate and bridge mm -hmm. with our work with the report and the Institute for Healing and Justice. However, it's really just so entrenched in a lot of different things. So kidney function and um, hypertension meds, like you said, and, and diagnosing asthma and COPD, it's really just rampant. Yeah, I was curious. Oh, go ahead, Maddie. I was just going to add really quickly, just like a little bit more about spirometry since you had asked us about spirometry is just, um, so for listeners who haven't read the report, we don't blame you. It's 70 pages long. Um, we wrote it because we needed, we wrote what we needed essentially to be able to stand up to, or be able to say something when this stuff was happening at clinic, because you, you watch it happen and you think like, this is wrong, but I don't know why. And I don't know how to speak in, about it in a way that is scientific and rigorous and will be respected in a position in medicine where the world is really hierarchical. Um, so for spirometry, the correction is sort of in the opposite direction that lung function uh, is assumed to be worse and therefore corrected mm -hmm. up. Yeah. Um, and so one thing that happens, and, and I should highlight here too that 
we are standing on the shoulders of giants, like Bernie mentioned, Dr. Vanessa Grubbs. Um, there are also a number of incredible social scientists who have been screaming about this at the top of their lungs forever, and we're really just trying to uplift that. So there's a, a brilliant scholar named Lendy Braun who wrote a really wonderful book uh, called Breathing Race into the Machine, which is all about spirometry. Um, and a couple of other mentors that we've had, including um, uh, Osagi Obasagi, who's a professor of ours at Berkeley, who's done a lot of research on this type of work. Um, what he sort of taught us is to be able to look at how statistics and genetics uh, tend to come into this with a preconceived understanding that we should be looking for differences by race. And if you start by looking for differences by race, particularly with statistics, you're gonna find something. Um, but what you're finding is not race. What you're finding is the effects of living in a racist society. Mm -hmm. um, but we don't measure that. And so instead, what gets codified into the machine is this really brutal correction for race that, for example, with spirometry, one of the examples that I like to share is that um, there's a really well-documented uh, case where workers were suing an employer for exposure to asbestos. And in that suit, a judge ruled that because of spirometry data and the way that the correction functions worked, that um, black workers had to prove that they had a higher lung function than, or they had to, sorry, they had to prove that they had a worse lung function than their white counterparts in order to qualify to be a part of that oh asbestos suit. Um, so that's a really blatant example of where medicine was using, medicine was used as this like cradle of objectivity mm -hmm. to perpetuate further racism in society. But the further we dig in, and this is why we, you know, we, we like to go through the history of a lot of these things in our report. And when you really start to dig in and pull this apart, like you guys probably saw with the history of gynecology, it's not objective. Um, and to hold it up as a paragon of objectivity uh, really allows the ugliness of how pervasive racism is, particularly in our society and in our field, um, to hide behind this veneer of objectivity. And that is often unquestioned. And so I think a lot of what we're trying to do is unpack that and give readers and listeners some tools to also start to get critical and ask questions and figure out how to change that. Yeah, one thing that I thought was really interesting and shocking about spirometry specifically was I didn't know that the person who sort of popularized this device and like started codifying these differences between black and white lung capacity was literally a slaveholder. And like, was doing that this guy Samuel Cartwright it's like he clearly had a motivation to try to show basically that black people did not have as high lung capacity and then that was yeah. used as an excuse for like oh they have to be enslaved and work so that their lung capacity can get better um which is also just super fucked up and doesn't really seem like it makes sense but it's just really interesting to me that the whole history of like that device and these measurements is really rooted in slavery um, I think another thing we wanted to specifically ask about, because I know like this has been on a lot of people's minds lately, is the racial disparities that we're seeing in COVID-19. Um, like we're seeing much higher rates of infection and worse health outcomes overall for Black and Latinx patients when it comes to this disease. Um, could you break down for maybe like a non-medical audience just your thoughts about why that might be, like what are the factors involved there? Yeah, I can um, definitely start in terms of, you know, why we're seeing racial health disparities. And um, I think a more accurate term would be inequities or injustices is really because 
Black and Latinx workers are essential workers. Therefore, in order to um, survive and continue to have an income, they are going to be uh, more exposed in places of which they are essential workers and they'll be and they are exposed to people who are more likely to have the virus and then they're actually going to um, uh, then be less uh, less effectively uh, treated not only in the hospital because of just different perceptions of provider care but also because um, of the structural racism the structural racism that um, requires them to go into work during a pandemic and not rest. And so the first thing mm. is that um, they are a lot of times essential workers. I can definitely say that in San Francisco, where we are, Latino and Filipino uh, families are being the most affected. Latinos are having over 50% of the COVID infection rates when really they are only 15% of the city's population. And then Filipino families are experiencing the highest death rates. And this is, again, because they are all essential workers. They're being more exposed to public places and transportation, of which they are more likely to be exposed. And then also they live in multi-generational households. And um, this is just a hard thing for um, uh, Latinx, Black, and uh, people of color because it adds to the, and it's, it's also hard because there is really um, the approach to COVID in the hospital does not allow for them to see their families, to see their communities. Oftentimes, if you're recovering from COVID, how it is in San Francisco is if you're recovering from COVID and you're unable to isolate at home, you are actually you actually are mandated to go to a hotel of which you have to self-isolate there. And so this has just been a hard disease for lots of black and brown communities um, because it really highlights how the essential workforce is made up of black, brown and immigrant communities. And there is no other choice in terms of um, the infection rates getting higher and affecting our people. Yeah, I think the only thing that I would add is that there was briefly um, a question of whether or not somehow biology played a role in this. And I think we can very, very confidently, swiftly, unequivocally say that race is, first of all, we know race is not biology. Um, and there have been many really wonderful think pieces that show sort of why all of what Bernie said is true, plus all of these other layers and how this might play out in places around the country. Um, you know, systematic access to insurance, where are the hospitals closing, where are the hospitals underfunded, um, who actually has access to uh, personal protective equipment, who does not. Um, and I, I think what we are seeing is a, is a microcosm of society and um, all of the injustices continue to be perpetuated on black and brown bodies um, consistently. And um, yeah, I had another thought, but I, I lost it. So we're going to have to end there. <laughs> yeah, thank you for sharing that. Um, Bianca, did you want to ask about um, the sort of intersections with Western and non-Western medicine. Yeah, now. sure. We can talk about it now. Yeah, I think that's a good transition. Um, so Bernie, Julia had shared with us prior to recording that um, you were doing some work with like holistic healing and whole body healing, as you were mentioning with a group you founded called the Freedom Community Clinic. And when you were talking at the top of the episode about how 
um, people in your community growing up or in your family were like very distrusting of Western medicine. I found myself very much um, relating to that from my own perspective um, as somebody who grew up uh, in a Chinese household who and my parents and par grandparents both practice elements of traditional Chinese medicine. But relatedly, in my experience, there's often this like undue automatic distrust of non-Western medicine because it's seen as like, quote unquote, not legitimate or like pseudoscience. And that term pseudoscience is loaded because as we've already discussed, it implies the existence of this unbiased objective science, which is obviously untrue, especially when it comes to the science of human bodies. Um, but I've personally seen and experienced the effect, uh, the effectiveness of traditional Chinese medicine at healing. But I've also been like ridiculed by white people for trusting its healing abilities. And so um, I wanted to ask you if you've noticed this sort of stigma or distrust of non-Western medicine in your work and maybe some of the ways you're kind of fighting back against that. Yeah, thank you for um, having me talk about this. I think it's a huge thing because I always say that, you know, Western medicine does not teach its students and its doctors and healthcare professionals how to uplift health. It teaches us how to treat disease. There's a huge difference in this framework. And so by virtue, honestly, of what we were talking about, there are only a limited amount of things. There are only, we're mostly taught of different tests and lab values of which to identify the disease. But in terms of, of in terms of uplifting health, it's very hard because that's not inherent or foundational in Western medicine. In addition, Western medicine, we talk about this in our report, but sees people as a collection of risk factors rather than really seeing every person um, for their inherent wholeness and their inherent humanity. And so, um, as because we've seen this, the Freedom Community Clinic was really created. Um, definitely of what you, everything of what you've said, because um, communities of color are not going to the doctor. And in addition, the, the different methods are not only not acknowledged, but what we're seeing with the expansiveness of the, of the wellness industrial complex is that um, the traditional indigenous healing methods are being commodified by white people. They're being made inaccessible. Mm -hmm and they're being profited off of, as we see all of these like expensive ass yoga studios, equinoxes, they're onto the power of holistic mm -hmm. whole person health. However, um, this is not being made accessible to our communities. And not only that, but it's being backfired where sometimes you go into black and brown communities and they're like, nah, yoga, meditation, like that's a white people thing. And this is just like, no, this is unacceptable because those medicines have belonged and had its origins and roots um, among black, brown and indigenous communities. And so with the Freedom Community Clinic, we've had really powerful events. We started last year, but I'd say that the most powerful events that we've had have really been um, in June in response to the murders of George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor, of which we began to set up these Healing for Black Lives clinics of which we would provide free healing services for Black and Indigenous people by Black Indigenous POC healers. And so this was such a beautiful event in the local parks of historically Black neighborhoods of Oakland. So we weren't going to like Lake Merritt. We were going to go to um, the depths of West Oakland, of East Oakland, of Deep East Oakland, um, where it's been historically Black neighborhoods. And we're providing healing services um, to people. And they range from things like Reiki, which is um, 
traditional Japanese mm-hmm. healing to massage therapy to acupuncture to Chinese medicine herbs. And we'll also have people there taking blood pressures and doing medication reconciliation. Um, and we'll also have, you know, therapists, just different people at the park giving lots of love. We had like a nap space. It was the most beautiful thing ever. And, um, and it's, it's honestly really interesting because as you see, lots of people aren't going to go honestly to the doctor because the doctors, they, a lot of times the doctors only have medications or different pills that have different side effects. A lot of people actually are more attracted to, um, holistic traditional indigenous wellness practitioners because they really do acknowledge the whole experience. And even for me, myself, I'm a medical student um, and I'm also a Reiki practitioner, a meditation and yoga teacher. And honestly, those um, modalities help me see and bring the whole person experience to my healing and for my patients. And I just realized that um, as doctors, there's only such a, there's only a limited skill set that's being given and and oftentimes it's geared towards disease rather than really uplifting the inherent health and healing of every single person. Yeah. I was just thinking about how we did this episode recently about the history of gynecology and we were talking about how sometimes it just feels like, especially in that field, but also just in Western medicine generally, it's just like so tied up in racism and colonialism. like the way that a lot of the discoveries were made and even some of the devices and tests that are still used. Um, And like, I think sometimes to me, it just feels like we need to sort of throw out the whole system and just start over. I'm wondering like if either of you ever feel that way about parts of the medical field. And if you do, how do you respond to those feelings or how do you think we should respond to those feelings? Sorry, that's a huge question. <laughs> no, 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 you're fine. I, um, I, yes, I mean, I think it's hard not to, if you have not, particularly if you have never learned this before, and, and I will acknowledge that there are many communities in which some of this or all of this knowledge is known um, bodily, spiritually, mm-hmm. and passed down and, um, that was not my experience. And so the experience of learning all of this uh, at times is very overwhelming um, Mm -hmm. and very frustrating and and, uh, does make me wonder, do we need to just start over, Um, like you said? Um, And I think that the answer to that probably depends on different individuals. Um, I think that there is a, a, a sincere question among practitioners who are burned out and among med students who are facing rotations or suddenly they're being asked to devote their entire lives and lack of sleep to this residents who are definitely lacking sleep um whether or not the system that the i will say at least particularly the u.s currently operates um that is also deeply entrenched in capitalism um, and very particular ways that 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 has shaped the care that we are able to give. Uh, I think that it is a time of reckoning and I think that that's important. Um, I think we saw that in in the political debates and I think we're seeing that in places that are much much less national. Um, And I think that that's that's super important. The, The way that I think I personally reckon with that is to just keep diving into this and, and understanding what it, where it's coming from and being able to speak up wherever I can. Um, and then I often uh, 
try to set as good of boundaries for self-care as Bernie does, but I usually fail. Um, <laughs> Bernie has taught me a lot about how to do this work in a way that doesn't burn you out. And I think that is also following in the, in the footsteps and the wisdom of many, many wonderful community activists and scholars of color who've, who've come before us, who have said that this, you know, this, this can't be a movement that encourages burnout. And I think that I would say the same to physicians as well. Um, and yet sometimes I'm definitely still left with this question of like, there are so many goddamn problems. What are we going to do with all of them? Um, and I guess I'm, I'm, I'm not totally sure, but I am still convinced to some extent of, of the power of Western medicine if it is done with humility and with community instead of enforcing it from above uh, onto people and onto people's bodies. Um, but I'm also really aware that I am headed into a hospital system where it is much more common practice to sort of force I don't know if force is the right word, but there's a there's a system of power and violence um, that is so common that it's almost not even seen in a lot of ways. Um, and so I think I'm also just acknowledging here that I feel a little naive because I haven't even really entered the hospital yet, and I'm not totally sure what that's going to look like. Um, mm. Yeah. Well, you sound brilliant to us. Yeah, I've just been so yes. stressed. No yeah. naivety, naivete. <laughs> On that end. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, Maddie, <laughs> Maddie has done so much. Um, well, Maddie um, is part of the founding team of the Institute for Healing and Justice in Medicine. Maddie has been, oh. Maddie has been so central in helping us. What we always say is we are reimagining a medicine that is um, centering community healing and justice. And I think what, you know, what Maddie had alluded to is like, all of these freaking problems that we are encountering right now, all the current hospital systems, like we are living in someone else's imagination. Mm. And this is no longer acceptable um, to only have Western medicine doctors only be trained in seeing medications and surgery and steroids as the only treatment for um, different diseases. Like that's unacceptable. We can no longer, we can no longer operate on that because that is perpetuating violence on our people. Um, that being said, there are there are definitely strengths to Western medicine. Um, I can definitely say, like in the Freedom Community Clinic event, like to be able to have different people who would never go to the doctor, being able to get their blood pressure and mm -hmm. literally just cry from a sigh of relief of feeling safe to do that with a provider who looked like them, is one of the most am amazing things that you can see. And and also, it's really important for them to get you know life saving medication that okay it's ideal for everyone to really have whole person feeling but what if it really does get to that desperate point of which i see on a daily basis where people are on life or death having exacerbations of breathing because they're in heart failure because of their diabetes and their hypertension that has gotten out of control um those are really situations of which western medicine can be very helpful can really help save lives and so how can we imagine the future of which to do that respectfully and also acknowledge like doctors don't have to carry all that burden, like acupuncturists, um, herbalists, um, massage therapists have knowledge of the body that is deeper than Western medicine and, and can really be a, um, can really, when integrated with these perspectives can be so powerful in allowing people to, to find healing in themselves. And so 
I think there are definitely strengths to Western medicine um, and we can't, but Western medicine cannot go on its own siloed path like it's wanted to with its ego complex mm -hmm. um, because of the traditional indigenous ways of healing that have been existing before it um, that can really complement it for chronic diseases, for cancers, for so many different things um, and can really help people live better, whole, healthy lives. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing that. Um, and so I, the next thing I guess we, I was kind of curious about was, so in your report's final section, you list these recommendations and action items that people in the healthcare providing community uh, can take to like move toward the abolition of biological race in medicine. Um, and so some of those include things like seeking out literature and research on critical race theory and anti-racist work. Uh, not using a patient's race and the problem statements of reports and constantly questioning it when race is brought up when determining how to diagnose or treat a patient. And so my question for you all is, and I think both of you have kind of already started answering this, but if you wanted to add on anything, um, what are your visions for propagating this movement toward abolishing biological race in medicine so that more and more people in the medical field and who provide healthcare in these more grassroots ways um, can know about the movement and can uh, take it into their own communities? Um, I mean, I, I think one one thing that we have been doing is uh, doing a lot of presentations of this work. If folks are interested, you can shoot us an email and we'll see if we can um, do a presentation. Uh, and that's had some really awesome, incredible moments, um, even over Zoom. Uh, we've also had a couple of more national webinar events that have been really, really powerful. Um, and we most recently had a webinar that was showcasing different organizers and different um, activists at different institutions that have been working to remove race correction factor from the um, kidney function reporting from the EGFR. And I think that that, that was the part that was the most powerful to me about that was that it was very clear. It was, it was a very lively Zoom chat, which was really fun, first of all. Um, it's, it's, it's rare that you're on a webinar of 150 people and it's like a party in the Zoom chat box. Um, but we had a similar experience when we did our first sort of national webinar and we, we had it actually broadcasted onto Facebook Live and the chat on Facebook Live was going off. Um, and so even just starting to see these connections across people who are starting to see like, oh, there are other people doing this work. Um, you know, I've had questions about this, or I thought I was the only one at my institution. Um, and people are starting to connect on, on that. And we're hoping to figure out how to best facilitate that in the next, I don't want to put a timeline on it. We're trying to figure out how we, <laughs> we're going to facilitate helping build that network, um, sort of community organizing style nationwide. And I think the thing that is perhaps most promising about all of that is is that we are working actively to move beyond I mean it started out as four medical students and so the bulk of who we have currently been talking to have been residents physicians medical students really much very like medicine heavy um, and moving away from that and into uh, working with health educators, with nurses, with community members. We talked to a patient advocate who was super stoked to try to figure out like how we could get patient advocates involved and patients themselves. Um, which I think all of it is to say that there's a, there's a hunger for this work right mm -hmm. now. And we're trying to uh, provide that as much as we can. Um, and also trying to just let the ground game 
you know, do its own magic. Um, yeah. And so I think that that's, to me, some of where that movement will come from and is coming from. Absolutely. Um, also, if there's any, like, organizations or work that y'all think is worth highlighting, um, we'd love to highlight that in the description of this podcast. So if you have any links that you want to make sure we include, like, definitely send that to Julia. Um, and we will for sure include um, the Freedom Community Clinic website as well in that Um before we say goodbye, because unfortunately we are a bit over time, we just had a wonderful time hearing from y'all. And um, is there anything else that y'all feel like you need to say before we say our goodbyes for now? I think the other thing is just that we are really uh, making sure that this movement towards a medicine that is more centered on justice, healing, and community is interdisciplinary and community-based. And so I just love how y'all were able to um, access our report and you know have this on the podcast I'm going to say that again we are working on the on the shoulders of giants and also a lot of this work is really limited to restricted academic publications or esoteric different I don't know publications and so it's so important for us to um, share this work with all people make sure patients know what's you know actually going on in medicine you deserve to know as a patient and so we want to um, have a lot of people involved in our institute. Um, it's called the Institute for Healing and Justice in Medicine. Maddie and I are some of the founding team members of it. It's really awesome. And we invite people who you can be in medicine. And we also strongly encourage people who are not in medicine but want to imagine a better future for our communities with us to join. And it's our website is instituteforhealingandjustice.org. And we're really um, hoping it's going to be a huge party and a huge fight for a better medicine and a more just future hell yeah that's incredible thank you both so much for coming on and sharing your expertise with us this was super enlightening um and you know we appreciate you taking time out of your very busy like medical student schedules thank you so much for having us it's been uh, really awesome yeah yeah, thank you both. It's been really great talking with you. And yeah, I think that this will give all of us a lot to think about and continue thinking about. Mm-hmm. Well, that was amazing. Um, as always, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Season of the Bee. You can uh, write us an email at seasonofthebee at gmail.com. You can check out our website at seasonofthebee.com. You can give us your money on Patreon at patreon.com slash seasonofthebitch. The cool things we have on Patreon right now are a Discord, which is extremely lively and also the most genuine place on the internet. And <laughs> two, we have a we have a abolitionist reading group, which um, is also incredible we we get to interact with folks on a regular basis and you get to know us a lot better um and we're gonna just keep cranking out patreon content i know we're gonna be doing one about the babysitters club coming up we've also talked about doing like more movie watching parties for patreon folks so just get in there slide uh, slide on in there and um rate review subscribe on itunes and spotify where we are now streaming (laughs) okay
Love you. Love you. Bye. 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 Season of the bitch. <laughs>